At the end of the day, though, it doesn't really matter. The defense, he's already lost this case. Uh, we're just figuring out how big a loss it is. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, October 4th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about the fraud trial against Donald Trump now underway in New York. This is a civil trial, not a criminal one. But as Eric explains, it's already extremely detrimental to Trump's financial health. And later, Tina Wynn and Ben Landy hop on the mic for a breaking update on the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, the now former Speaker of the House. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. This week, a $250 million fraud lawsuit against Donald Trump started in New York. It was brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James against Trump and his company and his two large adult sons, Eric and Don Jr. Trump is accused of misrepresenting his net worth to the tune of billions. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to take us through the ins and outs of this trial. Eric, this was a uh, quite the spectacle in New York today for listeners of the podcast, for readers of Puck, who are losing track of all the trials and all of Trump's legal challenges. What is this one about? Yes. Well, the most important thing to know about this one is that it's a civil trial, not a criminal trial. So if he loses, you know, he could potentially lose uh, some of his assets. Mm. Uh, he could lose the ability to do business in New York, but he's not going to jail over it. Uh, he will obviously cry to the high heavens that there's been, you know, some fraud against him. But at the end of the day, this is a business issue with the judge in New York reviewing whether or not he did business honestly. And the crux of the case is that he's said to have inflated his fortune, his assets, when he tried to get bank loans, when he tried to get insurance. Mm. Um, when when you apply to get a bank loan or you apply to get insurance, they do a, a lot of analysis about what you currently own, the value of your property. Mm. And based on that, they decide, okay, here's what fees you should be paying. Here, you know, This is the risk that's involved in doing a transaction with you. And so by finagling what he was actually owned, um, basically what New York Attorney General is saying is that he got the benefit of hundreds of millions of dollars in fees he didn't have to pay. Cameras were in the courtroom for this one, so you could see Tish James, the Attorney General, sort of sitting behind Trump, and then Trump sort of hunched over and angrily looking around. What is Trump's defense against these charges, Eric? Sure. Well, there's the defense that he will be, you know, appealing later on, and there's defense that he's bringing a trial. We should note that uh, the judge has already ruled that he's liable for at least one of the claims, a fraud claim, and so what's at issue at this trial is a few claims that the judge hasn't decided yet, like falsifying business records, mm -hmm. insurance fraud. But the main thing is, you know, what the penalty should be for, for what Trump and others at the organization did. So that's basically what is involved. Now, the defense here, he's saying, is that there was no intent to defraud anyone. The banks didn't really rely on anything that he was giving them. There weren't any unjust profits that at the end of the 
the day, the transactions ended up being profitable for everyone involved. And so there weren't really any victims. So that's basically what, what he's presenting. As for you know the, the larger issues that he'll bring to the appeals court is he's going to be saying that this all happened many years ago and it's outside the statute of limitations and to the extent that there was a tolling agreement that you know let uh, the New York mm-hmm. AG have a few extra years to bring the case. That only applied to the Trump organization. That did not apply to individual d- defendants like Donald Trump. Trump and his sons and all that. So uh, at the end of the day, though, it doesn't really matter. The defense, he's already lost this case. We're just figuring out how big a loss it is. I was traveling on Monday. I was on a bunch of airplanes when when all this stuff was going down. So I was sort of following it through push alerts and tweets and whatnot. I saw something that Trump's attorney forgot to check a box to request a jury trial. And therefore, it's just going to be judged from the bench. Is that true? Yeah, and I think that's no small thing, actually. Not that, you know, he might have had a little bit better of a chance before a jury, obviously, than this judge. But I think what it shows is that he doesn't have the best attorneys. And I'd be worried if I was in his camp because, you know, I think this is a preview of what's to come for some mm. of the, the criminal cases. I mean, this is a pretty simple thing. I think most attorneys would be on their game enough to make sure that, that this went before a jury. But evidently, that didn't happen here. That's what the judge announced at the trial today. You know, he kind of had to explain why this was a bench trial, why there wasn't a jury involved. And it just had to do with paperwork. As silly as that is, (laughs) sometimes it just comes down to silly things. Yeah. I saw a picture of the attorney in question, Alina Haba, like just looking like wide eyed. It was just like a still picture. And I was imagining the like curb your enthusiasm closing song, like on her face, like pushing in on her, like, oops. <laughs> Absolutely. I've already seen some great memes already with a video from uh, some of the trial leaking out with theme music from TV shows. It's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, he's not going to go to jail over this. It's a civil, civil case. But I heard it might be possible that he could lose Trump Tower. Is that possible? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay, first of all, he lost the business certificates for doing a lot of business in New York for, you know, managing some of these properties. And the big question is how much money is going to be assessed in penalties at the end of the day? There's Mm -hmm. going to be a receivership who comes in. And the thing is, if he's not able to pay the penalties right away, what's going to happen is basically the receivers are going to put the assets up for auction to pay the money that's owed the states. Now, probably all that will be stayed while the appeal is is going on, but it's certainly conceivable that he could lose a property or two, especially because, you know, it's it's pretty well known that Trump is not the most liquid of guys. I mean, he's, you know, has a lot of paper value, but doesn't necessarily have access to, you know, huge amounts of cash to pay a big penalty like this. Now, if he ever did lose Trump Tower, I'm sure some very wealthy liberal would either buy it or lease it as a troll. I'm going to be amused to see who that's going to be. Eric, last thing before you go, when is Trump's next courtroom appearance amidst all of these cases against him? Well, you know, it's hard to say the uh, what his appearance is going to be because I wasn't even expecting him to be at this trial. Who knows, you know, why he's there and who knows whether he's going to make more appearances at this trial, which is supposed mm-hmm. to run through December uh, or the beginning of December. There's a lot of pre-hearings in a lot of the criminal cases. Mm-hmm. The first ones of those go to trial in, in March. 
And there's the uh, potential retrial of the Carroll case in January. That's the uh, the one over you know whether he defamed a woman after sexually mm-hmm. assaulting her. Mm-hmm. I don't expect him to to be at that one because he wasn't at the at the first trial. But I'd say you can count on him being at some of the March events. But uh, other than that, it's probably as much a political calculation as a legal one. Yeah, there are cameras there after all, and he loves a camera. Eric, thank you so much. My pleasure. When we come back, Tina Wynn is here to talk about the end of Kevin McCarthy's speakership. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn on Tuesday afternoon, literally minutes after the House just voted to oust Kevin McCarthy as speaker. We're sort of doing this live as it's happening. Tina, obviously a fast-moving situation. Who knows what the status of leadership is going to be tomorrow or even a couple hours when this episode goes live. But um, what's your sort of top-level read right now on how it all came to this and, and what's happening next? This is like if you took some Shakespeare and mixed it with Monkey's Paw, you know, that um, it's like a Victorian era story about a guy who comes across a monkey paw and makes wishes. I know. And they come with like horrifying prices like, oh, I wish I had two hundred dollars. Well, you're going to have two hundred dollars because your son died and here's the payout like that sort of thing. In this case, McCarthy wanted to be speaker, cut the worst deal humanly possible with the holdouts. And now he's no longer speaker because one person got really mad at him and that person was Matt Gates, and it turned into a grievance session that managed to boot McCarthy out. This was so predictable. This was so short-sighted. Someone just sent a tweet to me that kind of puts into perspective exactly how short this was, which is Adam Weinstein. If McCarthy loses the speakership today, he will have lasted roughly 12 Flynn's, which is also the equivalent of about 45 Scaramucci's. It's also the equivalent to 5.4 Liz trusses for those who observe. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're right. This, is, this was totally predictable. And you predicted it. You said way back in January that when the 20 representatives who were voting against McCarthy in the sort of 15 vote voterama, they ended up putting this parliamentary suicide vest around him that was the motion to vacate rule, where it only took one member to initiate a no confidence vote. You said, you know, this is going to be a ticking time bomb around McCarthy's neck for the entire time that he is speaker. And and it turns out it, it has not been very long. Now, we should say that, that presumably there will follow another leadership vote and McCarthy could go back up again for the speakership. There may be no one else who wants the job. There may be no one else who can get enough votes. So his time with the gavel may not be over, but it looks bad. And it's definitely been a sort of embarrassing couple months for Kevin. Oh, my God. Yeah. Here's something that I kind of hinted on when I was reporting out my initial stories back in January about the group of people trying to keep McCarthy from coming on board. One was that the people who held up his speakership did not necessarily include Matt Gates. Like the people who were secretly plotting to do it were doing so under the radar. They kind of came out of nowhere and they went into negotiations with Kevin McCarthy, like specifically on certain topics that they wanted to focus on, certain grievances within the procedural process that they wanted changed. One of them was also they wanted him to stop preventing MAGA candidates to be running in congressional primaries. He gave them all that. 
I don't know why he decided to give them a one-person speakership motion to vacate, but he did, and it's turned into a weapon that anyone with a grudge against McCarthy, such as Matt Gates, can use to force a vote of confidence on him. And the funny thing is, is that most of the people I talk to in MAGA world and who engage in this kind of politics, they actually did not hate having McCarthy as speaker. They viewed him as transactional, and even if he wasn't fully on their side all the time, if he wasn't an ideological ally, he would try to get their agenda executed to the best of his ability. And if you are a pragmatic conservative ideologue, that's a good ally to have in your corner. He can take all the flack and all the hate of being, oh man, I'm like, look at this Kevin McCarthy guy trying to do what the establishment wants, but he'll try to get stuff done for you as well. So they're not going to be happy that someone in the party broke ranks and gave everybody an opportunity to crap on Kevin and crap on the only guy who could deliver for them in a manner that felt reasonable. Yeah, that, that's a super interesting point. But let's let's talk about Matt Gates, the man driving all of this, the one who initiated the motion to vacate vote. He's been McCarthy's number one antagonist, basically, from the beginning. He sort of single-handedly willed this showdown over the government shutdown into existence. I mean, this also felt predictable that it would be Gates who would bring down McCarthy because there has been a personal animus between these two from the beginning. You've been following Gates. Obviously, he's kind of a, a media fiend and you've had conversations with him, too. What is your sense of what he actually wants out of all of this? That's the question that I kind of have floating in the back of my mind. Like, what is the psychology of Matt Gates is hating Kevin McCarthy so much that he'll that he would try to snipe him out of the speakership? A lot of theories are going around. One is that he has a very personal animus against Kevin for trying to hinder him and disavow him when he was accused of engaging in sex trafficking. Charges were dropped against him. The other one is that he's trying to... Just just an incredible sentence to casually drop on this podcast, I by know, the way. but this is true. These are things that <laughs> happened. And the second one is that he's aiming to have a much larger political career. And he's built a high profile being not just a MAGA warrior, but like a MAGA kamikaze bomber, as it were. And he takes giant risks and they pay off. And it's not like anyone will ever really primary him out of his speech. He represents this district in Florida that contains this giant complex called The Villages, which is sort of a boomer retirement home paradise. And they love him so, so, so much. So, look, if you want to be a MAGA superstar, the best thing you can do is point to the fact that you got rid of an establishment power figure like Kevin McCarthy. And I think that Gates understands the politics of resentment better than a lot of people do. It's one thing to have a garage against McCarthy and keep threatening to pull him out of office, but it's another thing to actually get that on the floor and get just enough people to decide, hey, it's worth it to take a stand either for my constituents or either because I don't trust this guy. And oddly enough, a lot of people within the group of 20 that I mentioned earlier who held at McCarthy's speakership, they did not authorize this. They were like, we're just kind of going to go with this, guys. And you'll see that a lot of them actually did not vote to kick out McCarthy. Like, they voted no. 
Yeah. And by the way, going back to the point you were making about his sort of cynical motivations for all this, you know, there, there was an incredible photo of Gates on the Capitol steps earlier today where he, he was surrounded by like three dozen reporters who were all jabbing recorders into his face and microphones and, and cameras. And it's like, if you're trying to figure out what Gates wants out of all this, it's really pretty simple. He wants attention and he got it. I mean, there was reporting from, you know, back in 2021 that he wanted his own TV show, that he thought about retiring from Congress to uh, look for a gig at Newsmax, where he, he wanted to be a host. I'm sure he would like to have been a host at Fox News, too. And he actually um, filled in for Tucker Carlson on his show once or twice. So clearly, he already has his eyes on a second career after his time in the Capitol. And this all just feels like a stepping stone for him in some ways. Yeah, it really does. And The world is sort of his oyster at this point. If you can point to the fact that you ousted Kevin McCarthy as speaker, I repeat, as speaker of the House, which has, I believe, never been done, especially not like this, you're now like the most populist hero that could ever populist. Well, Tina, I'm glad that uh, at least somebody got what they wanted out of all this mess. And thankfully, nobody got hurt in the process except for <laughs> the United States credit rating, all of our sanity. But at least uh, at least some people are having a good time. Thanks so much for coming on. We'll see where things evolve from here. This is a, a fast moving, fluid situation. So um, we'll have you back on soon to talk about it all. Of course. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.